that have nothing to do but wait to pounce on anything or anyone that might be presented to them as their next meal. But most of all, I want us to think about the relationship between the Most High God and one of his precious and chosen children and see the faithfulness of the man before God and the salvation that God provides to his child. Even after 90 years of life, Daniel is still obedient to God, and God is still taking care of Daniel. The situation has not changed for either party, and it's a wonderful thing to see, and it's something that we need to have fixed in our minds as we read through this. Now, we're going to look at this entire chapter in the time that we have here today, and you may have noticed this about me, but I have a tendency to move a little bit slower than that, taking couple of weeks at least through each chapters, but Lord willing, we're going to get through this entire chapter of Daniel in our lesson today, and I think this story is so well known to us and so familiar to us that I think we can do this and get everything that we have here in just a single lesson. Now, as we approach the chapter, we're reminded that, that there's been a change of the guard. I remember, or remind you of what we saw last week, because in verse one, we see that a man by the name of Darius is now in charge. Remember, we saw that at the end of chapter 5, the last two verses, where it said, The same night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And just like that, the reign of Babylon was over, and the Medo-Persian empire comes in and takes over. And we move from the head of gold, if you remember back to chapter 2, the statue, we move from the head of gold to now we are into the arms and the chest of silver. And then right after this, we immediately go into chapter 6, verse 1, with the details about Darius. In fact, I'm not sure if I mentioned this last week. In fact, I don't think I did. But the Hebrew Bible actually has Daniel 5.31 as being the first verse of chapter 6, having them go right together. Now, I did mention last time that we need to take a look at this person, Darius, mostly because from history, we're unsure of exactly who this guy is. And let me just say this, however, since he is listed in God's word as the one who received the kingdom at the age of 62, we are positive that he was a man who received the kingdom at the age of 62. The fact that historians or archaeologists can't find the exact name performing this exact function from other sources really doesn't mean anything. The skeptics say, once again, that this proves Daniel a forgery, right? Whenever a name comes up, they can't find it. They say, well, it must not be true. But in reality, I say that it only shows that historians and archaeologists don't have a complete picture yet. And that's okay, because that's job security for them, right? That means that they still have plenty to look for and discover. But history doesn't prove or disprove God's word. It's nice when they work together, and I admit I get a personal sense of satisfaction any time that we can use outside sources to show someone that the Bible does match up with history, or here's this historical event, and here's what it says about it in Scripture. But it's not vital. It's not a make-or-break situation. The Bible functions just fine on its own. Now, that being said, there are a few theories as to who this guy Darius is, and I'll just present you with the two that I think are most likely Now, some say that he was a man by the name of Gubaru, a man that was appointed as a ruler of the Babylonian territory under Cyrus. 
Under this theory, they say that Darius is just another name for Gubaru. Remember, we've talked before about how names can be changed around. And that's a possibility, but it has a slight problem. The problem with that is that there is no record that Gubaru was ever the head of a kingdom. He had just a territory, a much smaller type of region that would have been involved here. And that's kind of a problem because we'll see in verse 1 that this person will appoint a great number of leaders over what it says is the entire kingdom, which doesn't fit very well with him being a lesser leader or the leader of just a small territory. And the other theory that's a possibility, and I'd say a strong possibility, and when I say a strong possibility, that means that's the way I, that I lean or what I think is the better one. But, but that theory is that the word Darius here could potentially just be a title and not the name of this guy. It would be a title like Pharaoh being a title or like Caesar came to be used for the Romans. Under this theory, Darius would actually be Cyrus. They may be one and the same person. And if you look at verse 28 of chapter 6, the very last verse, we see this. It says, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now here, depending on what translation you have, I don't know what the ESV has there, but in the NESB at least, it sounds like it's two people. But in the Aramaic, the original language, this could also be read in the reign of Darius, even in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And therefore, some take that to signify that this is really referring to one person. Now, there's a slight problem with this theory as well. I'm not going to say that's the perfect theory. Um, and that is that back in chapter 5, verse 31, Darius is called a Mede. And here in verse 28 of chapter 6, Cyrus, it says, is a Persian. And if they are one and the same, then the question is, why would it, they change the nationality like that? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know why that would be. It could be that Darius was a title used by the Medes, but the Persians just use names. But in the end, there's really no further support for that. So it does present somewhat of a problem. And all that we can really be sure of is that this person, Darius, was in charge of the Medo-Persian kingdom, whether he was someone who ruled under Cyrus, and there is just no outside record of him, or whether it was really Cyrus himself will probably remain a mystery for us for for quite a while, and someday we'll probably be able to ask Daniel himself, who were, who were you writing about? Who was this guy? But in any case, in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 6, we see how this person, Darius, organizes the empire. It says in verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. So the first thing we notice in verse 1 is what I mentioned before, that the appointment pertains to the kingdom. It says the whole kingdom. Now this seems to be more than just a local leader or a territorial leader appointing some men under him. He's appointing 120 satraps or princes. And these would be some type of officer specific to the Medo-Persian Empire. Their exact function may be lost to us, but what's important here is that, there are 100, is that there were 120 of these officers in the kingdom. And they would have been given various areas of authorities throughout the kingdom. Now, not all of these 120 men reported up to Darius. 
and he probably wouldn't want 120 men reporting to him directly. So Darius had another level of management below him. He also appointed three commissioners. And these 120 satraps would report to the commissioners, really an effective form of, of leadership, right? Breaking down the reporting structure in some way, perhaps each commissioner was responsible for 40 satraps, if they divided it up equally. Maybe the satraps each reported to the three commissioners for different purposes. Each satrap had three bosses. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Um, but we don't know for sure. But somehow these three were over the 120, and they were accountable to them. And this most likely means that they had some type of fiscal responsibility. They had the duty of making sure that the satraps were uh, running the kingdom effectively and efficiently. And if anyone has ever had a job where they get to come up with a budget and has had to wait to see whether their budget is approved, knows that budgeting isn't always a lot of fun. Maybe if you're a numbers person. Some people really like budgeting, I think. I, I never really liked it, but... But if you're a numbers person, maybe it's really fun, but, but it is an important aspect of running a company effectively, and it should be an important aspect of running a government effectively, a concept that seems to be lost today, but that's a lesson for another time. But Darius sets up his kingdom to run efficiently, right? Now, what's significant is that Daniel was among these three commissioners that Darius appoints. In fact, it says here that he was one. Now, that could merely indicate that he was just one of the three. There were three commissioners, and that Daniel was one of these three. But it could also mean the first. He was the primary one. Once again, this could be an indication that Daniel had elevated himself to be the main guy. And there is some debate as to whether this is what is meant in verse 2, but when we look at verse 3, we see that there is some foundation for thinking this might be the case. Verse 3 says, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Daniel, once again, was distinguishing himself. He was standing out from the rest of them. So there was something, again, different about Daniel. Now, that's pretty cool that Daniel had distinguished himself enough to be put in this position, but if you think about it, it's, it's, what's truly remarkable is that Daniel was appointed to this group at all. If you remember, when Belshazzar called him in in the last chapter, Daniel at that point in time was around 85 years old, and he was not in a position of, of leadership at that time. In fact, Belshazzar didn't even remember Daniel at first. But what was the last act that Belshazzar performed? He appointed Daniel as third ruler of Babylon. Perhaps this was enough to make Darius notice Daniel. I mean, when, when the Medes and Persians come in and they kill Belshazzar, here's Daniel standing there with his his robe and his, you know, and, and his uh, jewelry on that Belshazzar had just given him, and maybe they took special note of him, um, enough to draw attention to him, attention that God used in order to get Daniel put in authority in the Medo-Persian Empire. But Darius comes in, finds out who's in charge, kills Belshazzar, Nabonidus was gone, some say that he was already dead. Who did that leave in charge of Daniel? Well, I guess Daniel's it at that point in time. And he was not part of the royal family, which is an important aspect as well. 
Because if you were part of the royal family, they probably all would have been killed. So it's not difficult to see why Daniel was able to gain this position, but beyond that, when given the chance, Daniel distinguished himself even more. He wasn't just handed this role, he actually distinguished himself while he was functioning in it. But even among his peers, it became apparent to Darius that Daniel was the best man. There was something different about him, which we've seen over and over again through the first six chapters. He had a spirit, which we know was due to his devotion to God and that the king recognized as extraordinary, something beyond what the others had. And therefore, the king was going to appoint him as the main commissioner, even above the other commissioners. And make no mistake, Daniel was a wise man. He was an influential man. He was a powerful man. But he would also be the first to tell you that it was all because of what God was doing for him and with him and through him. He owed it all to God, and he knew that, and God blessed that attitude that Daniel had. However, this also made him a target. You can, you can understand that he probably wasn't seen fondly amongst his peers. Look at verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was found to be in him. Daniel became the focus of an intense search for corruption. The other commissioners were jealous, and along with the satraps, they started to look for dirt on Daniel. They tried to dig up an accusation against him. They wanted to find an accusation. They wanted to find the skeletons in the closet. I mean... Come on, Daniel was a politician. He had been in political power off and on for the last 70 years. There had to be a skeleton in that closet, right? Wrong. It says they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. Nothing. Zilch. Zip. Daniel was the perfect politician. He was the perfect politician. We need Daniel to run for president in 2024. However, even if he did, you know what? I doubt that he would get elected. Because nobody really wants the perfect man to be in charge. And how do I know that? Well, because that's what happened back in 538 BC, this time period that we're looking in today. The perfect man was about to be put in charge. The guy, that they do this investigation, they do this search through his history and they find out that there's nothing wrong with this guy. Absolutely nothing wrong with this guy. And instead of thinking, yeah, he'd be a great boss, instead they conspire to destroy him. Daniel was a faithful man. There was no negligence or corruption in him. There was nothing that he did wrong, nothing that he failed to do that he should have done. There was nothing there And these men found that out, and they came to a conclusion in verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Now, let that verse sink in for just a second. I love this verse. If you think about really what is being said here, The only thing that we can find against Daniel, the only thing that we can accuse him of, is being totally devoted to God. 
we're not going to find any dirt on Daniel unless it involves something that he's done for the sake of his God. What a humbling statement. After 85, almost 90 years of life, that that's all that anyone could find to hang on Daniel. That is the only dirt that they can find on Daniel. Even after intense scrutiny, diligently digging by the most powerful men in the Medo-Persian kingdom, that's all that they could come up with. That's the conclusion that they were forced to reach. How many of us could confidently say that that's all anyone would come up with if our lives were put under that microscope? If only someone could accuse me of this, if only my life was one that this was all that they could find. The only thing wrong with you is that you are too devoted to God. It's like me, that's like a knife through the chest to hear that. To say that Daniel was faithful just seems like a gross understatement. It just doesn't seem to do him justice. Well, in light of this realization, they come up with a plan to get Daniel, to destroy him, really, much like the wise men's plan against Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah back in chapter 3. Their plan, if successful, will result in Daniel's death. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius lived forever. Here they come to the king and give him the usual greeting, which we've seen several times under the old regime. It's unclear how many of them are actually in on this. There, were, there are differences of opinion as to whether it's all 122 of these men come filing into Darius's office, the satraps and the other two commissioners, or maybe there's just a disgruntled party, a remnant of the whole that are devising this plan. We don't really know for sure. But I tend to think that it's probably a fairly small yet vocal group, right? That's usually how these things occur. Maybe they represent the whole group of satraps and commissioners, but I doubt that every single one of them came. It's not real easy for 122 people to pack into one little office or even a big throne room. Kind of like the Chaldeans spoke for all the wise men um, that we've seen before, maybe there's a small group speaking to the king here. And this makes sense with what they say next. In verse 7, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together. Now, if you stop there for a second, they are telling the king that all of these men have agreed to something. This indicates that the ones speaking are representing this group. They're not all probably there. And what did they all agree to? It says that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. All of your high officials, O king, have elected you the most high god for a month, is basically what they're telling them, telling him here. For one month, for 30 days, no one can honor any other god except you. They must worship only you or they'll be thrown into the lion's den. Now, two points to make about the Medo-Persians here. One, like most cultures of the day, the Medo-Persians had no trouble worshiping their leaders as gods. So this was not really an unusual thing for them to do. Oh, king, you are the, you're the head of our kingdom, so we're going to worship you as a god. Very fickle kind of arrangement. And the second thing about the Medo-Persians is that when you... When you think about this type of punishment, right, you think, well, why didn't they just fire up the old fiery furnace and say, we'll just throw them into the fiery furnace? 
because um, that thing still had to be around somewhere, you'd think, right? But the Persians wouldn't do that because the Persians worshipped fire, and therefore the fiery furnace wasn't an option here. They wouldn't have used it in that way. So they had to find another form of execution. Why not lions? Lions are cool. If you think about it, wouldn't there be a better way to kill somebody? Yes, but maybe not quite as dramatic, right? So it's probably a very scary pit that they kept just to deter. If you don't do this, we're going to throw you into the lion's lion's den. So they would keep lions around and that they would starve, that they would always keep a little hungry so that they were ready to pounce on anyone thrown into the den. And one more thing to mention here is that these guys are obviously lying. They come in telling the king that all of the high officers had agreed to this, including the commissioners. Now, what's wrong with that picture? They tell the king all the commissioners agreed to this. Well, Commissioner Daniel didn't agree to this. I'm sure he wasn't one of the ones consulted on whether or not they should make this ruling. So we already know that what they're saying isn't true. The question is how many were actually in on it and how many weren't. Now in verse 8, they pressed the king to act quickly. So that's probably another indication that they weren't being truthful. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Here, sign this quick. We got it right here. We got the paperwork all ready for you. They're all eager for him to sign this into law, and he gets caught up in the moment in the pride of being God for the month. Oh, I'm going to be the the only God for the month. In Medo-Persian law, like it indicates here, once the king signed something, it was considered perfect. And as a perfect law on the books, it could not be changed, not even by the king himself. The king could not cross out his name, or he could not sign another document superseding the one that he just signed. The king couldn't contradict himself, so not even he could change the law. And this, was going, this is going to pose to be a big problem here. So now this law is on the books. And it has the authority of the king, signed, sealed, and delivered. And what is Daniel's response to this? Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Make careful note of this verse because this is deliberate action on Daniel's part. It was common practice for the Jews to pray focusing or uh, facing Jerusalem because that's where their heart cried out to. And that's where God's dwelling place on earth was in the temple. And Daniel, just like he'd always done, keeps praying in this same manner, three times a day with windows open. Now note that Daniel knew that the document was signed. That's the first thing it says there in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, he did this. He was fully aware of the king's new law. He wasn't ignorant of it. He was, he, he's not going to be caught violating a law that they snuck in on him and that he wasn't aware of. No, Daniel made a conscious decision to honor God above all else. It was important to Daniel that he keep praying in just the same way that he had always done. He didn't change a thing. 
Now, if you stop to think about it, couldn't he have stopped praying for a month? Maybe. I mean, just 30 days, right? If he knew this was just 30 days, it's like, well, I'll just take a little break and then, I won't, then I'll just keep going on the other end. Maybe he could have closed his window. Then nobody could see him doing this, right? Just close the window so that you're not in full view. Could he have cut down on his prayers or maybe, maybe changed the timing, just prayed at night in the dark so nobody could see him? But he didn't do any of those things. He kept praying in the exact same way that he always had because he knew that that was honoring to God. And in doing so, he was knowingly breaking the king's law and he was putting his own life on the line. Honoring God was worth it to Daniel. Well, this was no surprise to these guys. They were ready for Daniel. They knew exactly what he was going to do. The only question is, how long did they wait? How long did they wait to catch him? Verse 11 says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. I like how they, it says they found him, right? It, it's not like they were surprised. They caught him. They saw him through his window. Or they might even have asked him if he did it, and he wasn't going to deny it. Some say they caught him the first time that he bowed down. They were probably waiting outside of his window. Others say they waited a few days to gather, gather their evidence. Either way, they come in and catch him. He was guilty of violating the law. Verse 12, then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. And I love the question. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king answered and said, that statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. What's going on here? They're putting this all back on the king, right? This is a complete setup for Darius. This whole thing is going to be his doing. They're going to point to it as being his fault. Say, Darius, didn't you make a law just the other day, just when we were in here yesterday afternoon or just when we were in here um, a day or so ago that says no one can worship any god but you? Kind of, kind of like this is almost an afterthought. Like that he just happened to remember that he did this. And of course, the king remembered it and confirmed it as well as recognized that there's no way around it. Obviously, this was their intention the entire time. Verse 13, then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Now they drop the shoe. Daniel's violating your new law. Notice they put Daniel in as bad a light as possible. He's at exile from Judah. He's not even from around here. He's not even Median or Persian. He pays no attention to you, O king, which in this case, yes, he was following God over the king, but I think this is, was a gross mischaracterization, mischaracterization of Daniel. But these guys were going to relish the trap that they had just sprung, a trap for not only Daniel, but for the king as well, really. And immediately Darius realized that he'd been played. 
for a fool. He was so excited to be God for a month that he ended up being taken for a fool. Verse 14 says, Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Who was Darius frustrated at? I think he was probably mostly frustrated at this point at himself. He was distressed over his own foolishness. He was distressed over this situation that, had been, that he'd been put into. That he had allowed himself to be put into. He'd allowed the satraps and commissioners to trick him. And now as a result, he spends the rest of the day trying to find the legal loophole. Trying to find something that he could use uh, to where he would not have to throw Daniel to the lions. And if you think, you might ask, why didn't he just play the system? Why didn't he just put Daniel in prison for an indefinite period of time, figure a way around it? Daniel's in legal limbo, appeal after appeal after appeal. Well, that's not the way that it worked in the Persian system. In the Persian system, when someone was guilty, their sentence had to be carried out by the end of the day. That was an efficient system, right? There were no appeals. There were no long, drawn-out trials. Daniel was guilty of this, and the king had no recourse at the end of the day but to carry out the sentence. And his satraps and commissioners were very helpful to the king as well. Look at verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a, a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. How nice of them to remind him of the law, as if Darius didn't already know this. He'd been working all day to try to find that legal exception. He himself had told them that this law could not be revoked. And yet here they are reminding the king of his duty to the Medo-Persian law. Darius's hands were tied. He was in a no-win situation. Verse 16. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Now we'll find out a little bit later that this was no small den, nor were there only a few lions in there. This wasn't like the zoo enclosure, where if you don't go at the right time, you don't see any lions. That was always frustrating to me to go to the zoo or taking the kids to the zoo and, oh, here's the lion enclosure. I don't see any lions. Oh, there's one sleeping there. Oh, there's another one sleeping over there. That's, that's all you see. That's not the picture that we get here. There were a lot of lions in this den, really a pit. The word for den really means dig. So this is some sort of hole in the ground. And these lions were kept for this purpose, to be hungry enough to devour anyone that was cast in. Daniel has been condemned to death and the sentence has been carried out. He's been thrown into this pit. Notice what Darius tells him. Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Undoubtedly, Daniel had spoken to Darius about the Lord. And Darius had probably heard some of the stories of Daniel's life as well. It may be that Daniel had come to respect the power of God, but I believe we'll see later that he will fall short of trusting him. I don't think this is a Nebuchadnezzar moment where it's a true conversion of any kind. I think he just recognizes that whoever Daniel's serving must be a powerful God. 
So what he's really saying here is, now, Daniel, only the God which you serve can save you. If Daniel has any hope of surviving, it can only come from God. Verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet rings and the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. The deal is sealed. The great stone brought in and rolled over the top or the mouth um, of this pit. And then both the king and his nobles seal it with their rings. And of course, that's to signify that there's no tampering. There's no, no one has messed with the stone. The nobles here are probably the accusers. Uh, they would want to make sure that Darius doesn't have Daniel rescued as soon as they leave. So here are these accusers. Darius puts his seal on there. They put their seal on there so that nobody could, there's no funny business going on here. They want to make sure that nobody comes in and tries to help Daniel in the middle of the night. They want to make sure that he's dead. And that's how vindictive and bloodthirsty that they are towards Daniel. So the king is greatly distressed over this. He's beside himself with grief and probably still a little mad at himself over his own foolishness. He wants no food. He wants no music or entertainment of any kind. He wants no sleep. or He gets no sleep. He sits all night and stews about what's happened. And he has a lot of time here to think about things. To think about Daniel. To think about the mistake that he made. And I think he's thinking about his satraps and commissioners too. All night long, he sits by himself wondering what's happening to Daniel all the way until morning. Verse 19. Then the king arose with the dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, when he came near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? At the crack of dawn, as soon as he sees light coming over the horizon, the first possible moment he has that he can go and see what's going on. Here comes King Darius. He's not worried about ceremony here. He doesn't wait for an entourage. He gets his 62-year-old body out the door and runs as fast as he can to the lion's den. He cries out with a troubled voice, it says here. This is his weak, uncertain attempt at seeing what's happened to Daniel. He's, he's very uncertain. For all intents and purposes, after a night with the lions, there's no hope. There's no way anyone could survive in there. And Darius is relatively certain that Daniel will not answer him. So when he comes to the den, there is only one thing that he can think of that might make the difference. Maybe Daniel was right. What if those stories that Daniel had told him about his three friends in the fiery furnace were true? And the stories from the times of the judges or the exodus from Egypt, what if Daniel's God was really that great? In Darius' mind, that's the only way that Daniel could still be alive. If Daniel's God was really as great as Daniel claimed that he was, and the king's about to find out. Verse 21, then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. 
You know what I find remarkable here as we get to verse 21? We're in the 21st verse of this chapter. Daniel has been plotted against. Daniel has been discovered breaking the law. He's been tried. He's been convicted. He had his sentence carried out already. And this is the first time in the chapter that Daniel actually says anything. These are his first words in the chapter. He doesn't speak out. We don't have him recorded speaking out against the law. He doesn't give a defense when he's about to be thrown in with the lions. His only words come after God has miraculously saved him. After God's power has been revealed through him and in his life in this instance, now he has something to say. Only now does he give his defense before the king. God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths. No doubt took care of their claws too. We don't know what angel this is. Some think that it may have been the pre-incarnate Christ, but there's really no indication of that one way or another. All we know is that God sent a messenger. God sent his servant to deal with the situation and, see, and rescue Daniel from harm. In God's eyes, Daniel was innocent. And towards Darius, he has also committed no crime. Darius was the one in the wrong here, and even Darius knew that. He was not worthy of worship. Daniel, by serving God, rather than Darius, committed no crime against his king. In all of this, Daniel was nothing more than an innocent bystander who was put in a deadly situation by the sinful men around him. He stood innocent before God. This reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter 4 about the wrongful suffering that comes in our own lives at times. 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. Here was Daniel. He was guilty of nothing other than being obedient to God. And they tried him, and they put him to death for it. They, for all intents, just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were thrown into that furnace, but God saved them. And God rewarded their faithfulness. God rewarded Daniel's faithfulness. Now, not everyone will have the lion's mouth shut, or the flames of the furnace do them no harm. There are plenty of instances where innocent people have been harmed. And that's even what Peter is saying here. People suffer as Christians. Right? Some people are even killed for being followers of Christ, for the name of the Lord, for the sake of obedience to God. But for Daniel, God saw fit to allow him to escape harm from the lions. Look at verse 23. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. They take Daniel up out of this pit, the den, and there's not a scratch on him. There's no injury. Just like there wasn't even the smell of smoke on his three friends before. There was a lesson to be taught to Darius here. And that was that Daniel's faith in his God is what saved him. Darius now understood who God was. Now He now understood the power of God. All the stories that he'd heard before, all the accounts where 
They weren't embellished. He's now seen firsthand the power of Daniel's God. And he understood something else too. And that's where I think a lot of his thinking that he did overnight came to fruition. Look at verse 24. The king then gave orders. And they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. And they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. The king wasn't fooling around. The king was, this, this made the king a little hot. He was a little upset. He pronounces judgment on the conspirators and the sentence is carried out immediately. Now this is a harsh sentence. Not only are the conspirators brought in and given Daniel's punishment, but their families are punished along with them. And this sounds barbaric to us. It is barbaric. I mean, it's, but it wasn't something that was uncommon for the day. Oftentimes, when it came to conspirators, their families would be executed right along with them so that no one would be left to take revenge later on. I mentioned that earlier about Belshazzar when Belshazzar died, that Daniel wasn't part of the royal family. They usually killed all the members of the family, children included, because then there wouldn't be anybody to grow up and come and try to take revenge later on. Well, same situation here. A son wouldn't grow up to harbor a grudge and lead an overthrow of the kingdom. If the whole family were gone, there wasn't much chance of that. So that's what's going on with this. Here's where we see some of the loose ends uh, from before tied up and, and where some of the details become clear. First of all, how many conspirators were there? Well, if this is 122 men and all their families, that would be quite a bloodbath here. But more than likely, this is, these are just the ringleaders. These are the ones who came in before the king earlier, the ones that were setting all of this up. It may be that, they were, that the others were in agreement, but a smaller group was coming in before Darius. And that leads us to kind of the second point or the second thing to tie up, the number of lions and the size of the den. This is an amazing scene that we see here. Even if this was a handful of men, say, say it's half a dozen men, just as a number, and their families, a wife and two kids, and they probably had more than two kids, We'll just say 24 people being thrown into this den. That's a lot of people, especially when you consider that they were overpowered before they even hit the floor. Then we see that that's a lot of lions. This was a big den of lions. And I make note of this because skeptics will say, well, Daniel could have hidden from the lions when he was in there. It wasn't really an angel. Daniel just found a nice little hiding spot in there. Um, or he could have avoided him. Or like the, like the enclosure at the zoo. You know, there's one there and there's one there and he's sleeping. He's real quiet and he just finds a little rock to hide behind. Maybe they don't even wake up at all. Or maybe they weren't hungry. No, that's not what was going on here. We see right here, none of these were the case. The lions pounced on all of these people immediately. They were hungry, they were strong, and they were efficient. That's the other thing that people say is that, well, they kept them so starved that they were all emaciated and they, they just didn't have the strength to do anything to Daniel. No, we see here that that's not the case. I really think this is one of the main reasons why this verse is here, to show that the lions were dangerous and that Daniel 
wasn't saved by some anomaly or because he was the hide-and-seek champion of his day. And the other thing that it shows is the, the retribution or the vengeance of the Lord. They did not get away with their sin. There was punishment meted out for their crime. In verses 25 to 27, Darius gives a decree, a proclamation, much like we saw from Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 4. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? It's actually very similar to the decree of Nebuchadnezzar. It starts off with the audience of everyone in the kingdom, which is quite normal. But let me point out another thing here. When we talked before about whether this guy was someone who was just the head of a little territory or if he was really the head of the kingdom, I think the proclamation here shows that he was the leader of the kingdom. He wasn't just a territorial leader, but he's talking about in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. So he seeks here to right the wrong that he had done earlier. You are not to worship me. You are to fear the God of Daniel. Because Daniel's God is the living God, enduring forever. Kingdom will not be destroyed. Dominion will be forever. God is sovereign. And Darius now understood the stories that he'd heard. Understood what his predecessor had come to understand. Not only did the head of gold understand this, but now the head of the chest and silver gets it too. All due to whom? The faithful servant Daniel. The way in which God worked through Daniel. What an amazing testimony. The influence that one man had, not just on one world empire, we've already seen what the influence he had on the Babylonian empire, but two empires. Now he's one of the head guys in a second empire. Darius recognized the power of God from the way in which he could save Daniel, something no one else's God could do. Evidently, the conspirators' gods, right, small g, not real gods, couldn't save them, and they ended up perishing. And we close out the chapter in verse 28. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And we saw this briefly earlier, but Daniel, toward the end of his life, enjoys success once again. It had been a while Uh, He went through 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar uh, where his role was uncertain. Uh, We don't really know all that was going on with him during that time. But now, once again, God blesses him. And no doubt, he continued making sure God's will was done in the medial Persian Empire. And it's remarkable, isn't it, that throughout this book, even though it's written by Daniel, and Daniel is the main character here, It's not really about Daniel. This is a book about God. And Daniel is the one who gets to be used in a way to draw attention to the sovereignty and the majesty and the glory of God. We're done now with the narrative portions 
of the book. And we'll get to see much more of what God revealed to Daniel. Daniel wasn't just a godly guy. He was that. And I don't want to give the impression that Daniel was perfect. Obviously, Daniel was a sinner just like everyone else is. But you don't see that in the book, right? You don't see that in, in, this, uh, in this portion of Scripture. But God also used him in mighty ways to bring us great truths concerning future events. Events that will coincide with Israel's return to God's good graces when he takes them back for himself. And also events where we will see what is in store for the world and the nations that God is using even now to punish his chosen people. Are we like Daniel? How would we react to the extreme circumstances that Daniel goes through here? If we knew that the penalty was death, would we continue to pray three times a day? Would we continue to read our Bibles? Would we continue to witness to those around us? Would we change any part of our obedience to God if it came with greater personal risk to, our, to ourselves? Could someone accuse us of obeying our God too much? Well, you follow God too much. You follow God too well. Is that the only thing that they could find wrong in our lives? I pray that it is. I pray that about my own life, that I would be such a servant of God that it would be apparent to everyone around me. And I'll admit, I have, I have work to do. So let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you again this morning, Lord, and we just give you praise for this book. We thank you, Lord, for the man Daniel and for the way that you used him in mighty ways. Lord, we thank you for the way that you take care of your children. We thank you, Lord, for just the, the sovereign way that you guide our lives, Lord, and, 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 and use us for your purposes. We just pray, Lord, that we would be obedient to you, that we would be uh, submitting to you, Lord, in every area of our lives, and that we would... Lord, as we walk through the world, as we, as we interact with other people, just pray, Lord, that our testimony would shine. Pray that others would know that there is a difference in our lives, Lord, and that we, do not, we don't just look like those in the world. Just pray, Lord, that we would use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. Pray that we would, we would find the opportunities that we need in order to uh, let others know about you and about your work on the cross. And we just pray, Lord, that you would just give us the, the boldness that we need to do that each and every day. Lord, I just thank you again for our time here. I thank you for the opportunity we have to study, and I just pray that you would be with us as we go into the next hour, Lord, that you would just help us to honor and glorify you as we, 